So today we are in our last few weeks in our series in Abraham called The Difficult Journey of Faith, uh, which is a look at Abraham and what it teaches us about what it looks like and does not look like to live by faith. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 24 today, which is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, 67 verses long which I imagine strikes fear into the hearts of some of you who maybe did not choose to come here today. Uh, We will not read every verse, but I encourage you uh, to seek the Lord and say, Lord, whatever I need to hear today, I pray that I would hear it and that I would see it. Amen? Amen. Now, as we get into it today, what we're going to see, what this whole chapter is about is Abraham, who we've been following for all these chapters, he is going to seek to find a bride for his son Isaac, and that is the premise of the story. We're going we're gonna to have lots of, sh- lots of points today. It's like a, what I call a shotgun sermon rather than one direct point. I'm going to be throwing things out with you left and right. I just pray whatever the Lord needs to have stick with you is what would stick with you. Starting in Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Phrase I've never said to anybody. <laughs> that, I may, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. All right, so Abraham wants to find, as I just said, a wife for his son Isaac, which is a very big deal because if Isaac does not have any children, all the promises that God made would not be fulfilled. Remember the promises God said to Abraham, your descendants will be like the sand of the shore, be like the the stars of the sky, that all nations would be blessed through you. So he's instructing one of his servants to say, hey, go, go to my home country, find Find a bride for Isaac. And it's such a big deal to him that he asks his servant to place his hand on his upper thigh. And if you understand the Hebrew here, it's like upper, 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 upper thigh, like really uncomfortable upper thigh. Um, And that probably seems like an uncomfortable proposal to all of us, especially men, right? Um, You want to put my hand where? We do have to remember this was a a different time and it's a much different culture. They did not have written contracts. You could not email contracts to each other to sign digitally. So a lot of agreements were made through verbal oaths and really symbolic acts. And then they were meant to send a specific meaning. For example, like placing the hand under the upper upper thigh, um, as weird as it sounds, had really powerful meaning. It, It was the idea that the promise of God made to Abraham was about his offspring, which was a big deal because remember, they were barren. They could not have kids, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And so it's like Abraham's saying to his servant, this mission is about the promises of God. This mission is about my offspring. It is important. Do not forget it. And I guarantee you probably didn't after that. Right? But this would have been a sacred thing to them would have had a lot of meaning. Us in our Western culture, we're just too immature nowadays, right? Um, So anyway, so you have to get past that. It was a big, it was an important thing. Now, Abraham asked his servant to go and travel really, really far away. Like this would have been hundreds of miles, no airplane, no train, like they were on camels. 
And so it would have taken a couple months to get there. And so naturally his servant has a few questions about this. Starting in verse five. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which I came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send an angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So we see Abraham's servant pausing, wondering different ways this might work out. How does Abraham respond? Verse seven, he says, basically, look, God made me a promise. So I know that he's going to come through. You know, I feel like it's easy in our lives to have all of our unanswered questions chip away at our faith. Like when we don't have all the answers, it's so easy just to have the fear and the doubt come in through those. And and I think there's a great just example to follow here in how Abraham replies. Because when the unanswered questions come that his servant had, where does Abraham go back to? He goes back to the promises of God. He says, no, no, God promised this. He's gonna make it happen one way or the other. Even if it's not quite what I look like, it's gonna happen. In every situation when we're facing something new, difficult, or unknown, we should ask ourselves when the doubt comes in, the unanswered questions come in, the fear comes in, what promise am I clinging to? Because most of the time, we don't take the time to look up a promise of God that applies to how we approach our situation. We just don't do it. And so then we're left clinging to nothing. And that's where the fear and the unanswered questions and the doubt does its damage. It is amazing if we take the time to find the promises of God, to lean and depend on how it will strengthen us as we move forward. Like it's literally just that simple to find Bible verses in context that we can use as a foundation for how we move. Now, but I also say, look, if you notice Abraham's faith in God's promise, it did not exclude action on his part, right? Said this before, he didn't think God was an Amazon delivery driver, right? That was gonna just, you know, same day between three and 7 a.m., as long as over $25, drop off his wife at his tent. Abraham's actually taking steps. I believe God's providence, you see this in the Bible, is seen and revealed in man's diligence and obedience. He wants us a part of the process. And I wondered as I was writing this, how many of us get frustrated with God And we we feel like God is not delivering on his promises as we just sit there not doing anything. You know, it'd be like someone getting frustrated, like the mailman has not delivered my mail and yet we're not willing to walk out to the mailbox to check. Believing in God's promises, it's not just an internal thing. Believing in God's scripture is not just an internal thing. We actually have to put action to what we read. 
And then when we do, we see God's promises fulfilled or often we'll see, we take a step and he's like, ah, take another step and then another step and another step until we see his promises fulfilled. So one of my prayers this morning is say, Lord, where in our lives are we just sitting there waiting for you to deliver your promises and we're not moving, we're not acting, we're not taking any steps. Amen, church? Verse 10. So after the questions are answered, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, get it out there, to the city of Nahor. And, And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening the time when the women go out to draw water because it wasn't in the heat of the day. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, I love this prayer. I love it. This is a prayer that we should be praying all the time. Lord, please grant me success. I mean, how often do you say, God, I pray for success. Give me favor. Help me achieve this for your glory. How often do we do that? I do not do it enough. Now, this is why it's important. We should be praying this all the time, all the time. Because one reason is it reminds us it is God who gives us success. Psalm, not one, Psalm 127, verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. And I believe when we say, Lord, I, I, I need success. I, help give me success. Help me, help me to achieve this for your glory, blah, blah, blah. You know, what it does is it gives us confidence to step out because we're reminded that it's about God's strength and his abilities and not our own. Because too often we are not willing to take steps of faith because we have so much doubt in us. I struggle in sin here and here. I doubt myself here, here, and here. I'm not good at here, here. And we just, boom, all of them irrelevant. When God has set you to do something, he gives you what you need to do it. And when we say, Lord, when we we understand that the Lord is the one who grants success, and we keep reminding ourselves by asking and going to him, it washes all those doubts away. The Lord will get this done. The Lord will, I just need to be obedient. It's not about me. Just need to be obedient. We should also ask God for success because scripture shows us that there are some things that he only does by prayer. Now, some things he's gonna do no matter what, whether you pray for or not, he's gonna do it. But there are some things that he only does by prayer. Let me give you an example. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Look at that very first word of Philippians 7, and. 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 It means do this, and then this will happen. 
which implies if you do not do this, this may not happen unless God throws down some extra grace and mercy. It's the same in James 1 when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you, which implies that if you do not ask God, he may not give it to you unless his grace and his mercy or you have some praying for you in your life. And it makes me wonder in my life, I was thinking, where have I not seen God move in my life in situations because I simply haven't taken the time to pray? Because if you're like me, you're a doer. So if something goes wrong, I need to get it done. We should always be a prayer first. And so my, my, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit starts bringing to us, even in the tiniest areas of our lives, this idea said, Lord, I pray you grant me success. You help me with this. In fact, I literally got done writing this portion of my message yesterday. And then uh, dear Tom here is outside uh, working on a door lock, a new door lock, right? Key code, it's very cool. And he, anyway, he's working on it. And so I go out to help him. And we have this little piece that we're trying to plug into this other piece. And, and he cannot get it in there. Uh, and then I cannot get it in there. And then we get pliers out. We cannot get it in there. And as I'm doing it again. I'm like, I remember what I literally just wrote. I'm like, Lord, please help us to get this done. And I literally get it done next second. I kid you not. Now you, some of you all want to call that coincidence. You go for it. I want to say is the Lord was reminding me of what I was about to preach the next day, that even in the tiniest things, we need to seek him for success. All right, so he stops, he's praying, he's saying, Lord, I need success, help, help me to carry out this mission. And let's go to verse 15. We'll see how God answers. It says, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance. I mean, she was a total hottie, right? A maiden whom no man had known, and she went down to the spring, she filled her jar, and she came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when he had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they had finished drinking, which was a big deal because camels can drink a lot of water. So it wasn't like a one bucket thing. Gallons of water they can drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and then ran, through, ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all of the camels, all 10. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered her journey or not, his journey or not. Now I love again, Acts verse 15. It says, before, before he had finished speaking, that means before he had finished praying, Rebecca showed up. This is a great reminder that God, as we read in Matthew 6, he knows what you need before you even ask him. And this is even the cooler part. He is answering prayers sometimes before you have even prayed them. I mean, think about it. He is standing there and he's praying this prayer. It is not like God said, oh, oh, the servant is praying. Let me do a Star Trek beam me up thing. And, and Rebecca just beams up from one place to another. No, no, she had started a journey. Like she started walking from her home to the well water before he had even started praying. So God was already working on answering a prayer that he had not prayed yet. That is kind of cool to think about. 
that right now as you sit there, God may be orchestrating an answer to a prayer that you have not even prayed. Man, God is good. And I also like to point out, we talked about this last week, two weeks ago, how very practical and very normal, very just a very human way God answered the prayer. There was like no lights and you know neon signs and strikes of thunder and lightning. Rebecca's literally just going to get water like she does every single day. She has no idea that she's about to be an answer to prayer. And I think that is how God deals with us most of the time in very practical and normal ways. He puts things in motion to answer prayers that we are going to pray in very practical ways. And it's important to remember that because sometimes when we're so busy looking for the supernatural fireworks, we miss just the little ways that God provides for us. I'm going to say it again. Is God not good, church? Hmm. Now, I also want to highlight, I told you, shotgun sermon, a lot coming your way. I want to highlight the patience and humility of this sermon, this servant. So the woman comes and does exactly, exactly word for word what he's praying for, right? And this is not like a big deal. It's not like any woman would offer this. 10 camels, gallons upon gallons of water. This was work, right? And so he's getting exactly what he asked for. And it says this in verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's pondering, he's meditating. He's saying, man, God, is this you? Is this you? Are you answering my prayer right now? And we should pay attention to this. Here's why. When we want something, especially us Christians, when we want something, when we desire something, we will look for anything to support it, anything to be a sign, right? We want to attach God's name to it. We are so eager when we want something. That's why I always tell you, anytime you see a sign and it's something you really wanted, Be skeptical. Make sure you pause. Because when we want something, we want to be affirmed in it, right? We we, we believe we're on the right path. We we believe we know what is best. We believe we're making the right decision. And so we'll look for signs. Like, we'll look for anything. But not everything that we think is a sign is actually a sign. And so he's pausing in this humility and he's saying, man, this is what I prayed for. But I don't want to make a mistake. I want to make sure this is you, God. We should always be cautious and prayerful. When our heart wants something or our emotions want something, we should always check it because our hearts can be deceitful above all things. This is why our lives are not guided by signs, but by the word of God, the ultimate sign. God, is this you? Right? Is this really you? And I'll tell you, a good way to know if you're humble, you don't see it in here because I don't know if he had anybody with him to ask, is you go to someone else and say, look, I really wanted this, and I think this is what God is showing me. What do you think? That is someone who really wants to seek the Lord, to go to a mature Christian who really loves and is following the Lord to get wisdom. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. 
and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there a room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we got plenty of straw and fodder and a room to spend the night. Then the man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Now, I love that he stops and he gives thanks to the Lord. Like, really right there, just right there. And then this is actually, this goes back to an earlier point when I said it's, it's good to always ask God for success, to look to the Lord before something. Because I think sometimes God moves, he provides for us in our lives, but he doesn't get the credit. Because we didn't look to him before what we were going into, we don't think about looking to him afterwards. But any time that we pray and we say, Lord, I need you here. I need your help. I need, I, success can only come through you. Our eyes get fixed to start thinking, okay, how God, how's God going to work here? And then when the thing, good thing happened, we're like, God, thank you. God should always get the glory that he deserves. And that's only when we remember to, to ask him for success and then we give him thanks afterwards, even in the tiniest thanks. Verse 28, then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And so then what happens is, is this servant, he goes back. I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase the next 11 verses. He goes back to the household of Rebecca, and he literally shares the entire story of what happened. Everything that we've already read, he just recounts it all. The whole story, how God moved and everything. And I love how he's giving God glory and he's saying, hey, God did this, God did that. I think we should all do that in our lives. When God works in our lives, we should never be afraid to tell other people that it was God. Then after he does this, he poses this question in verse 49. He says, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Basically what he's saying is, can I take Rebecca back with me so that she may marry Isaac? Verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing that has come from the Lord, we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servants heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and they drank and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servants and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and they said to her, oh sister, may you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess, possess the gate of those who hate him. Verse 61 and then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. Now Isaac, 
had returned from Bir Roy, if I can get that out, and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes as she saw Isaac. She dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, which was customary in that time. Do the, in the, the middle of the betrothing, uh, betrothing process. Betrothing process. Can't speak today. Verse 66. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So what are we seeing here? And this kind of goes into the second part of our message. What we're seeing here is one of the first examples of arranged marriages, which is very difficult for us in a Western independent culture to wrap our heads around that instead of a man and a woman choosing each other, the families of the man and woman would choose each other. Now, I'm not saying that we should consider from switching from autonomous marriages to arranged marriages, though some parents, we probably would prefer to pick out the spouse for our kid. But uh, I'm not saying we go back to that because arranged marriages in my research have some serious problems of their own. However, I think there's some principles that we can apply to bring God glory uh, in our Western culture. Like the principle of, of commitment first. Arranged marriages are about committing. You were like going into this and I'm, I'm committed to this person. And then as you get to know them and, and time with them, the feelings of love come, uh, hopefully if you're both honoring God. Now we've reversed that. In our culture, it's all about feelings of love. And then when you feel those feelings of love, then comes commitment. The problem in our culture, as soon as the feelings of love start to dissipate, so does the commitment. Now listen, I like autonomous marriages because I am pretty sure at the place I was in my life, Maria's parents would have never chosen me to marry her, right? So I'm all for it. But I wonder how the health of autonomous marriages, our divorce rate, how they would change if once we said, I do, that our foundation for our marriage was our commitment to each other and not, bit, which is based on God's word and not based on our feelings. Of all the marriage counseling I have done, I don't care how messed up the marriage is. The same constant truth is what, what will show me whether they're going to make it as a marriage that God intended or if they're going to end up in divorce or be a marriage that is a shell of what would bring God glory. And that is their commitment to each other. Their commitment is to honor God by serving each other, by being committed to each other no matter what. I'm going to love this person as God has commanded me to, whether I like it, whether it's uncomfortable, whether it's comfortable, no matter what, I'm committed to them. Those are the marriages that thrive. Like I said, no matter how, how messed up and hurting the marriage is. At the same time, I've seen the tiniest, tiniest things, problems so small, you wish in your marriage that was your problem. Destroy a marriage because they weren't committed to each other. When we are committed to God in our marriage, obedient and serving our spouse, the feelings of love will come. It's when we reverse that that we get into trouble. Are you with me, church? 
I think another principle I want to pull out is uh, the principle of godly counsel. Once again, not saying I want to go to arranged marriages, but, well, maybe now that I'm a parent, I might, but you know what I mean. I feel like in our culture, we have gone to the extreme. We'll take the most important decision of our relational lives and we will isolate ourselves because we believe that our heart knows best. And we will get angry with people who challenge us. I know this because I have parents come to me who are concerned about who their child is dating. Every church I've been in, and they're saying, I'm afraid to talk to my child because I'm just going to push my child into their arms. Young people, here in the house, watching online, single people, I want you to hear this. And this is maybe the most important realization you need to get in your dating life. And it comes from the Pastor J.D. Gear. He says, listen, your heart is an emotional idiot. You are easily deceived. I don't think truer words have ever been spoken. And listen, all of you married people, you know what it's like. You know what kind of emotional idiot you can become when you skip the hots for somebody when you're young. Or even when you're just single and you so badly want to get married, you will be blind to the most obvious things that everyone else sees around you. We ignore godly counsel in our relationships because we're prideful and we think we're right. But in reality, our hearts are emotional idiots. Jeremiah says, look, the heart is deceitful above everything else. Nobody can understand it. It's sick. We need people in our lives. Oh, man, man, if you would have known me when I was a teenager. Mm-mm-mm-mm. When I was in my 20s before I met Maria, that angel, man, I... You need people in your lives who are wise, who can look from the outside in a godly perspective and soberly, without like the the deluding adrenaline that comes with attraction, and help you navigate your relationships. And listen, single people, if the people you love around you have concerns about who you're dating, listen. Matt Chandler said this, he said, one sure way to walk in complete and utter foolishness in romantic relationships is to date someone who troubles the godly counselors in your life. Proverbs speaks to this in a general way. He says, a fool's way is right in their own eyes, but whoever listens to advice is wise. How many of you older people, you're married now, how many do you wish, do you wish, do you wish with every ounce of your being that you would have listened to godly counsel in your lives when you were young and dating? And, 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 and I think when it comes to godly counsel, one of the big things is like who we should be with in the first place. For if you, if you sit here as a Christian, if you watch as a Christian, the marrying somebody that is in our faith, the importance, the criticalness of that has completely lost in our culture. I mean, you see this. Abraham was like, I don't want Isaac marrying a Canaanite. Was he racist? No. But he knew that someone, that's, that his son marrying a Canaanite 
would put the thread, uh, would God's promises, the fulfillment uh, as a thread. And I don't have the time to go into all why, but they worshiped other people. It was, it was a mess. It would have been a horrible risk. In a similar way, Scripture calls a Christian to only marry another Christian, period. 2 Corinthians 6.14, this is a general statement, says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? That means in your closest relationships, whether it be marriage, be friendship, don't surround yourself with people who are not following God. Now, does that mean you shun everybody away? No, but it means where you invest your life, when you invest your emotions and your energy, where you make yourself vulnerable to, Make sure it's a Christian. Because if they're not a Christian, if you're going one way and they're going another and you're trying to go together, you're not going to get anywhere. You'll go a completely different direction. Second, 1 Corinthians 7.39, when, when Paul is talking about a marriage, he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, once again, remember, by natural causes, make sure it's clear, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In the Lord's will. And yes, I realize there are people who think they are missionary dating. I tried missionary dating. A Mormon. Did not go well. Okay. And yes, I have to admit though some parents may hate hearing it, I have seen rare examples of God in his grace and mercy using a Christian partner to bring another one they're dating to Christ. But because his grace showed up does not make it right. It's still a sin because here is the basis. If God says, do not be unequally yoked, and then you're in a relationship with someone, a non-Christian, you're being unequally yoked. It's still wrong. And I'm not talking about someone who just says, yeah, I'm a Christian. They go to church once a week and God has no other part of their lives. I mean, someone who actually believes that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And here's, a, here's another way to look at it. We don't think about this when we're young. We don't think about this when we're single. But think about when you go into dating, think about your future children, if God blesses you with any. The biggest impact on your future children will be your spouse besides you. Nobody else. And so if you're a Christian and, and if you believe our sin separates us from God, leads us to eternal damnation, that a salvation is only through Jesus Christ, why would you make or choose to have the largest influence in their life outside of you, someone who will take them in the completely opposite direction? Every time that I dated a non-Christian, yes, I said I tried missionary dating, really what it was at the core was an act of selfishness on my part. I was choosing the attraction, the feelings I felt in the moment, and putting at risk my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. This is how the enemy works. When he cannot successfully attack your faith, 
He's going to put you in situations to bring people into your life that is going to stop the progress of your faith to the next generation. Balaam is a great example, and I don't even have time to go into the whole story, but uh, there's somebody who wanted him to curse the Israelites, and he couldn't curse them. Like I said, I don't have time to describe it, but he said, here's what I'm going to do. I can't curse them like you want, but I'm going to find all the hottest Moabite women, right? Find all the models. I'm going to send them into Israel, and then they're going to seduce the Israelite men, and then they're going to have kids that are not dedicated to God. They're going to be split, and we'll destroy the faith of the next generation. Oh, and it worked. This is what the enemy does. You've got to see it coming. He gets you in a relationship, whether it's friendship or even dating, that stops the forward progress of your faith. This is what he's so sneaky. And while you're in just lovey-dovey and you're writing your name and your book or you're dreaming about future things with this person, he's just laughing because he knows he's done the damage. And look, if you're listening today and you're non-Christian, I don't mean to like demean you. You're like, man, I feel bad now. But you shouldn't be dating the person you're dating unless you really plan to become a Christian because that is their goal for you. If you're, if you're a non-Christian dating a Christian, they do not accept you as you are. They don't. They believe you're missing something. And they believe that you are missing Jesus, and so they're hoping you'll find Jesus. They're praying that you'll find Jesus. If you guys are watching together online, I'm probably going to make this awkward, but they're probably peeking over you to see if you're like touched by this message. And if you're not open to becoming Christ, you should be one to exit that, language, that, that relationship because it will going to lead to a lifelong marriage of strife and heartache. I see it all the time as a pastor. Some of you can attest to it. Christians, do not date somebody you wouldn't marry or that you shouldn't marry because dating, even though our culture has made it all about fun, at the end, it is a road that leads to a destination. And if you have no intention of going to that destination with that person, stay off the road with them. Because as many of you can attest to in here, every mile that you travel with them down that road, it makes it harder and harder to get off on the exit. Proverbs 6, 27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burnt? No. Whether it is in something else or in marriage, do not compromise when it comes to trusting the Lord. Trust in his timing. It's not the same as yours. And the proof that you trust God is that you do not compromise, even when things get difficult. So when you want to get married, has not happening on your timetable, you have a choice. You can trust God or you can compromise. Your father knows your struggles. Read in Matthew 6. He, know, he knows your desires. He knows what you want. He, he knows if you have them, the hairs upon your head. He knows how important marriage is to you or, or whatever God has you pursuing, trust him. Obey him. For most of the, our lives as believers, we just 
take God's promises as our starting point, and then we remain faithful as we walk in obedience. And then through the circumstances, God takes us to the proper place that he has called us to be in his will. And that's when we see his promises fulfilled. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, your own emotions, or your own attract eyes, right? Or the cute girl that looked at you across the school way, whatever it may be. And he will make straight your paths if you acknowledge him. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 